Hello, everybody, and welcome to WTS 213. 213. I'll check this one before we start recording. Yeah, yeah, I do. I quite enjoyed number 13. Uh, I'm Danny Murray. I'm Gray Meridan. And we're both very tired on a Saturday morning recording. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we recording this, Danny? Are you need to explain? Uh, yeah, no, I will explain it. So, um, our guest this week is the brilliant Philip O'Connor, our man in Stockholm. And we spoke to Phil during the week about all kinds of things, really. Uh, about coronavirus, about just mad Egypts and believe in any kind of news. But most importantly, we want to talk to Phil about his project uh, outside its America. And it was a Kickstarter campaign that he was launching, or that he had launched rather, to basically raise money go to America, record 50 podcasts, 50 days in 50 states in the build-up to the American election. Um, you just might have seen this week, Trump had his Republican National Convention where he accepted the nomination, obviously, and all that kind of crack, and seeing some of the absolute nonsense that came out of that. But between us recording with Phil and this podcast going out, uh, Phil had to pull the Kickstarter campaign, um, and he's currently looking at an alternative way yeah, or different options. He went. Yeah. He, he set the target of uh, of trying to raise fifty thousand, and um, so it was obviously like fifty thousand. Raise fifty thousand for fifty states, fifty days, um, and he didn't get that number. So, um, I think I think what I've read about that website is that if you don't raise your target, um, you don't say keep the money or whatever. You know, right. so he couldn't. I think he was at ten thousand. So. He can't keep ten thousand. He has to raise the full. So the people that put so it's all or nothing, basically. Yeah, it's all. That's I could be wrong in saying that now, but that's I, I think that's where I read something about it. So anyone basically that has contributed to date will will get a refund. So Phil is is obviously um, putting his thinking cap back on, and he still wants to get over. So whether it be uh, twenty days in twenty states or whatever, mm. you know what I mean. He, but I think as well that if he was to do the 50 days, 50 states, he would probably have to have left uh, next Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah, he was saying, he put up a thing um, on Friday evening saying he would have had to leave Sweden, which is part of the Schengen area, which yeah. America still has travel restrictions in. So in order for him to get into America and be able to do everything and all that kind of stuff, he would have had to leave his home like within the next couple of days um, and then get into America from like the middle of September. Um, so timeline's really, really tight on a really, really ambitious project. But a project that I think, even if you can pull off half of his original idea, it'll be fucking amazing. Quite frankly, oh, I think it'd be brilliant. Yeah, I think it'd be very so, good. It's a shame. So, yeah, it is. It really is. But but still, so when you're listening to this, uh, it is a little bit outdated. That's the downside of us recording midweek for a weekend release. But it's the best way we can do it. Um, but I would say still check out Phil's stuff, check out our man in Stockholm, follow him on Twitter, and keep an eye out, because whatever shape this project ultimately takes, it's going to be worth, uh, it's going to be well worth a listen, because, look, we all know that Trump is a mad thing, so getting to hear people who, not political analysts, not, you know, like, news reporters and journalists, and people who study this kind of thing, but just the bog average bloke having a cup of coffee on why they're gonna vote for this man i just think it'll be interesting and fascinating to hear people who are clearly devoid of morality and sense absolutely in, in, yeah, my, and in my opinion 
yeah absolutely and and i mean this is the, this podcast this episode with phil is still a great listen um and like you said at the outset we like we talk about a, a number of things we did have them on to promote the kickstart um but um you'll enjoy this listen anyway with phil o'connor absolutely so phil o'connor take it away delighted to have phil back on the podcast phil how are you my friend are you keeping well Jesus, if I was any better, I couldn't stand it, lads. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I was only—I only realized the other day, right? Out of the last six months in this pandemic crack started, I stayed in a hotel one night, right? And that is the exact opposite of what usually happens in my life, right? I spent about one night in my own bed every six months. I've missed out on the Olympics. I've missed out on the European Championships. I've missed out on all sorts of things. And you know what? I couldn't be happier because it's just th- these things we learn to live. They're sent to test us. And as George Harrison memorably said, this too will pass so i'm just trying to make the most of this whole fucking pandemic crack and get back to what's really important and that's family and that's community and that's just being happy in your own skin absolutely and what's the story Amen. with um what's the story with sweden now phil because at the start of all this you were doing the rounds with um ewan and, and dunphy and stuff like that and you, you were you were given descriptions of the approach the swedish government were taking where they weren't going in full lockdown yeah. they were more so gone they, they, they were basically would it be fair to say they were leaving it up to the public to act their age? So to speak? Yeah, exactly. Well, it, it's an amazing strategy. You know, you ask people to behave like adults, you know, it would never work in Ireland, you know, but that's essentially <laughs> what they were trying to do. So, and it's fascinating, lads, when you look at it. And I've like, obviously when there was no sport to report on that kind of thing, I end up having to go and do something else instead. So I ended up sort of covering a lot of the pandemic because Sweden was the outlier. So there was a huge interest in Sweden and why Sweden was doing the things it was doing, you know? So like I said, I have Eamon Dunphy on to me sort of once or twice a week and he's giving me calls about stuff and you know Eamon's gas because he's in lockdown he's 74 and has I don't know you know if you want to call it risk groups or whatever he'd be in about six or seven of them you know as any <laughs> ex-mill ball player would expect to be you know but um yeah so if you look at how they decided to do it and it's fascinating because when when this all started right when COVID-19 first really appeared in November and December in Wuhan and China right it came as a shock to all of us right but it didn't come as a shock to epidemiologists to people who work with this on a daily basis to the center for disease control in the u.s to you know what is now nfet in ireland so this is not new like you know so they've been expecting this kind of thing not necessarily this thing but this kind of thing for a long time so the main sort of thing here was the way they sort of approached it was okay lockdowns the guy is who's a state epidemiologist here is a guy called anders tegnell and i've interviewed him many times over the last few weeks right so his idea was he looked at this and went this is not going anywhere anytime soon right it's already out of control right so the way to if you're going to do a lockdown lockdown wuhan lockdown the one bloke patient a who has it right but once it goes beyond patient a and you're up to patient m uh, and o p q whatever you know now we're up to patient i don't know how many right th- th- that's that ship has sailed so anders technel decided okay lockdowns don't work and the reason lockdowns work, don't work and this is exactly what he said to me eventually people are going to go out anyway right so he went what i'm doing here is I'm in this, I'm playing the long game. I'm doing this for the long term. I'm doing something that's sustainable over the long term. And essentially what he said to people, his communication, he communicates like a scientist and not like a politician, which in one way is good and one way is bad. A scientist, if you ask them a question, they will give you a scientific answer. A politician, if you ask them a question, they will lie to you basically and tell you whatever makes them look good, right? So he gave these scientific answers. And basically what he was saying was, look, I know this isn't great. I know this idea of wash your hands, stay at home if you have any symptoms, work from home if you can, try not to have that much social contact with people. 
uh, and then we'll try and protect the elderly. He said, these things are all going to make your life difficult. But believe me, I'm making this as easy as I possibly can. Yeah. And then there was the bit of the big stick. Don't make me lock everything down. Right. So if you behave yourselves, I'll let you do all these things. Travel two, two, two hours from your house and that kind of thing. But, you know, don't make me turn into the big bad wolf on you. And amazingly, because of the way society is structured here and because of the sense of trust that people have in people like Tegnell and in the authorities here, People go, okay, we put the best people in the best position, we pay them well, and then we get the fuck out of their way and we listen to them when they tell us to do things, right? So what you don't have is a situation where people are taking an epidemiologist who's worked with everything from Ebola in Central Africa from the mid-90s onwards, and somebody, you know, there's nobody calling up Liveline here and going, he's a fucking idiot, he knows nothing, you know? <laughs> the man's very, very qualified. He's making these decisions based on the best information available at the time. Now, that doesn't mean that he's making the best decisions, lads. That means that he's making the best decisions based on the available information at that time as we all know that has changed over time we have learned an awful lot we know so much more now than we did six months ago and we will know so much more again in another six months time but whisper it i mean like again the one thing that has to be said in all these discussions is that the way the elderly care and the way elderly people have been handled in this has been an absolute catastrophic failure right so that you can't get away from that in any discussion about sweden i over 90 percent of the people who've died here have been over the age of 80 years of age right and that to me is an absolutely sickening reality because these are the people who built the welfare state that my children benefit from whether i like it or not lads i owe a debt to those people in their retirement to ensure that i pay my taxes and that they can live with dignity for the rest of their natural lives right now such is the structure here that that did not happen there are no definitive answers as to why that did not happen but you know i'll offer an opinion if you want me to offer an opinion but it it should not have happened these people should have been able to live out their lives naturally and in dignity and that has not happened i have heard of cases which i haven't been able to confirm where people instead of being offered um proper medical care were immediately put onto palliative care and palliative care is what you get if you have a serious illness the doctors don't think that you're going to recover from essentially what they are doing is they're making you comfortable as you die right now to do that without consulting with an elderly person without consulting with their family to treat them in that way to me is i, I just i cannot condone it i can't say that the swedish mitigation strategy has been great when that catastrophic failure has existed but if you park that to one side and i don't want to be glib or callous in saying that if you put that to one side and you see how society as a whole has reacted it has actually been relatively successful but that success in relative terms goes up against the fact that so many people so many elderly people so many grandparents so many parents have, have sacrificed themselves or have been sacrificed so you know if you're going to give it, you know, a, a grade or whatever, I just I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. But, you know, as I say, certain things have worked from an epidemiological point of view. But serious questions have to be asked about what has happened in elder, elderly care. But again, that's not exclusive to Sweden. That's happened in Ireland, the UK and in America as well. Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. But I just just when, when you were on uh, The Black Guy with you and McKenna, um, or it might have been Dunphy, but whatever, they, they said to you, Phil, is it working? And you said, I'll let you know. In three months time yeah now it's six months later did it work um yeah because what but. we're hearing what we're hearing from particularly in ireland this past weekend with the anti-mask brigade and the right wing stuff is like they're they're using sweden as you know you know the likes of david quinn and all look look, look at sweden sweden did this why, why did we need a full lockdown 
Yeah. Well, you see, the, th- the thing is, lads, I mean, it goes back to that Simon Garfunkel song. A man hears what he wants to hear and he disregards the rest, right? So, pro-life David Quinn, did he mention the elderly people in Sweden? Did he mention the over 5,000 people who are 80 years and over, who sacrificed their lives, who died maybe before their time, who might have had a year, two years, five years left? No. Okay. Because what they want is this, like you're talking about people who are not pro-life. They're not pro-life, right? They have this very extreme version of freedom and the idea that the state can't tell them what to do, right? What happened in Sweden to a certain extent worked, right? But the thing is, that's in hindsight. You can't, you couldn't say at the time, there were no guarantees back in February or March, right? That what has happened here you know the relative successes that have been had that there were ever going to be successes right the poster children really for uh, the lockdown strategy in the beginning like, you know, I hate to point a finger at any one country right but say New Zealand and South Korea they handled this very very well and very very quickly and yet now South Korea is on the verge of another lockdown we've had three counties knocked out, locked down again in Ireland because you know we had a lockdown and lockdown didn't work right but these are things that you know again everybody and this is another thing that Tegnell has said to me everybody was working off the basis of the same information right they were just drawing different conclusions and the reason that they were drawing different conclusions is the fact that you could not trust the Irish people or the British people or the South Korean people or the New Zealanders or the Americans to, to react in the same way the Swedes did, right? It's just, it's part of the national characteristics, it's part of the socioeconomic setup, it's part of the national psyche that if somebody like that asks us to do something, right, if somebody like Tegnell asks us to do something, then we obey because we know that the consequences of not obeying are different, right? Whereas if you do that in Ireland, I mean, just look at Phil Hogan. Just look at, you know, that man was asked to do so. Those rules applied to him and he, he basically meandered around the country yeah, yeah. because he thought he was point. better than everybody else. So, you know, you, you, every situation, every country reacted in its own way. No two countries reacted the same, lads. Even if you say there was a lockdown here and there was a lockdown there, no two lockdowns were the same. The recommendations were never the same. We see the same thing with masks now, whether we need them in classrooms. We see the same discussions around opening schools. We see the same discussions happening all the time. But what you won't hear from the far right, and one of the things that I am fascinated about, right, is how ethnic minorities in pretty much every country I've looked at have been disproportionately hit. Right. The other thing that is uh, people are being disproportionately hit are the people in vulnerable employment. Right. The people who have to go to work to earn their money. I'm talking about bus drivers, taxi drivers, hospital porters, people who care for the elderly, healthcare workers, all the people who are, again, not being glib at the bottom of the socioeconomic food chain are being disproportionately hit by that. And yes, I do not see David Quinn and the rest of the people on the far right standing up for better things for them. Now, how could they make things better for them? All my neighbours are taxi drivers, lads, right? This house on this side of me, I'm pointing over my head, taxi driver. The fellow on the other side, taxi driver. The fellow across the road, taxi driver. They're all taxi drivers, right? It's just, it's basically, you know, failed Irish journalists or, you know, <laughs> fake Irish journalists and taxi drivers living in this place, right? And mm-hmm. th- they were all destroyed by this, right? Now, it's beginning to come back. They live on the airport. The airport's about 20, 25 kilometers from where I live. And they live on the business from that. No flights coming in. The lads were absolutely destroyed. Many men had to hand back their taxi plates. And it's almost exclusively men living in this area who do that, right? Uh, but the other thing is, in the very beginning, right, of this pandemic, it, it, the Swedes have this thing where they do the calendar in weeks. And it's very helpful when it comes to school, right? Because week nine every year, which, to save you having to do the sums, Merrow, it's about the last week in February, first week in March, right? It's what they call the sport. Yeah, yeah, he's laughing. 
laughing, but his eyes aren't laughing, are they? <laughs> but uh, but that, that's what they call the sports holiday here in Sweden, lads. And that's usually when Swedes would take their kids away skiing. Now, that sounds like a really fancy thing to do, as it would do if you were traveling from Ballybrack to the Alps or whatever. But here you can be skiing in two hours. You can go for the day and cost 15 or 20 quid for lift pass or whatever, right? So people do that this week. Now, richer people will obviously go to the Alps and that. Think back, lads. Where did this start? This started in places like Bergamo in the Italian Alps, right? Around about week nine, lads, this was happening. Now, when these rich Swedes were getting back to Sweden, who do you think was bringing these people home to their big houses, their big detached houses out along the coast here in Stockholm? My neighbours, lads. Sit in the car yeah. with them for 30, 40 minutes in a very enclosed environment with people who've just been exposed to COVID-19. So, where are the banners for them? Where are the protests for them? Where are the lads collecting money for the bus drivers who are being sort of, you know, and they're back now. It's, it's the same thing is happening now. Public transport is fairly rammed. It was fairly loose before the summer. There wasn't that many people traveling. But now the schools are back, you know. Where are the people marching for them on their behalf? Where are the people marching for the hospital staff who are being exposed to this all the time? So, again, going back to Simon Garfield, man, here's what he wants to hear and disregard the rest. You can cherry pick things from Sweden and you can say, yes. Uh, people have had a great time and there was no lockdown. Restaurants and bars were kept open. But yet there's still been a huge price paid by my neighbours. There's been a huge price paid by, you know, there's a man called Martin Hessian owns Veerstrom's Pub in Gamla Stan, the old town here in Stockholm. He went from having 11 staff to him and behind a bar and a girl working part-time from because there's no tourists in town, you know. So, you know, the, the idea that somehow Sweden's economy has survived this is nonsensical. You know, unemployment has gone from just under 7% to over 9%. All of SAS, 90% of SAS's uh, SAS's cabins staff were laid off you know so there's huge swathes of the industry the event industry here is on its knees as it is in ireland so the idea somehow that sweden is a poster child for this you know has it been a success success yes but again everything is relative and again to get back to what i said three months ago we won't know for years what the effect of this is going to be right because so you, I was, you mentioned uh, south korea and new zealand there yeah. their their attitude was elimination of the virus was sweden's just to live with it it was, yeah. I don't think Tegnell ever believed that this virus, once it got to a certain point, I don't think that he ever believed that it could be eliminated. It can be contained and it can be controlled, but it can't be eliminated. So his two things were, you'll often see the headlines, lads, that Sweden was trying for herd immunity, right? That is categorically not the case, right? Herd immunity would be a byproduct of the Swedish, uh, of the Swedish mitigation strategy, but it was never the goal, right? So the goal was always to live with this as safely as possible for as long as possible, right? The idea being that either herd immunity would happen or that a vaccine would be found. But again, Tegnell says that the only thing that we've really successfully vaccinated against in human history is smallpox, yeah. right? You still get measles, mumps, rebel. They still turn up in certain places. Smallpox is really the only one that you don't see anymore. I was reading the other day where polio has been eradicated in Africa. It may spring up again somewhere. It tends to occur every now and yeah, again. Yeah, that, that was only a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, but so it, even those diseases haven't been entirely eradicated uh, by vaccinations either. You know, so this is the thing that you know Tegnell's idea was that you know we've got to we've got to deal with this. We've got to learn to live with this because it's not going to go away. And a fascinating thing, lads, because his own personal experience is very much like it colors very much what he's doing with the Swedish mitigation strategy. So he went to Central Africa as part of I think it was the UN he was working for at the time, and he went to Central Africa during an Ebola outbreak in the mid 1990s. And the first, do you know, what the first thing he bought was when he got to Central Africa, lads. Oh. He bought a container load of bikes. Right now, you would have thought that oh, I'll buy ventilators, I'll buy medicine, uh, I'll, I'll import nurses from France or whatever, and I'll do that. No, he bought bikes because they needed to get information out to the villages to tell people 
if you're sick, come to the hospital. Because people were getting Ebola and they were afraid. And this is something that I spoke to John Connors, the actor and writer and the man who's in trouble there for a few things on social media. But I still believe John's a very decent lad. And he told me that many in the traveling community had, had a similar idea that if you go to a hospital, you're only going to get sick. You know, you're only going to get sicker uh, if you go there because that's where all these things are concentrated. When Technel wanted people coming there because they wanted to know about all the cases, they wanted to see all the symptoms, they wanted to be able to deal with them and they wanted to be able to treat people. And without getting that information out to the villages, they had no way of getting information out to the villages. So we went and he bought a container load of bikes. And that was the first step. So it's something that it's very counterintuitive. You, The three of us probably would have said the same thing. OK, what we do? Well, we lock everything down because if people aren't meeting each other, you know, well, that's but we knew so, so little about the virus and how it transmitted. You know, this idea of it being a droplet borne virus, the masks thing is very interesting. Because people say, oh, you know, the virus, the particles of the virus, the actual sort of, you know, virus itself is very, very small. Yeah, but the droplets aren't. And it's dependent on the droplets for transmission. Many years ago, or not many years ago, it's probably about three years ago, I was in the Karolinska Institute here in Stockholm. And um, I did a story about the deadliest mosquitoes in the world, right? And what they do is they have the malaria virus, these really, really deadly mosquitoes, and they give the malaria virus to a person. But the malaria virus itself is a tiny, tiny organism. And the story I was doing was how this virus sends out a signal to mosquitoes and says, pick me, pick me, bite these people so that I can be transferred. Right. So that's the microbiological level that we're working on. Right. But of course, if you sleep under a net, the mosquitoes never going to bite you. So that's where like all these things around masks and everything else like that. We're talking in terms of very simple science, the kind of science that's described by scientists themselves as if this, then that. Right. So if this happens, then that automatically follows. That's not what science is. Right. Science mm. is a series of possible. No scientist ever like no more than politicians. They very seldom give you a straight answers. They'll always say, yes, that's a possibility. And that's the, the really frustrating thing. We're talking to Tegnell and talking to people developing vaccines and everything else like that is that they're very non-committal. There's no yes. There's no no. I can't say to somebody, look, can you tell me a date when this will be over? Because that's just not what they do. You know, that's, they're not they're not capable of even saying these things. So the idea that we can say, yes, masks are a good thing, or yes, masks are no, masks are a bad thing. Look, sometimes masks work, sometimes they, they don't, right? What do you want to do? Do you want to try to protect as many people as possible, or do you want to be a fucking idiot? And that's how much much of this debate is coming down to that. You know, I was looking, actually, you, you both know that I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, right? So I'm involved in this community of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Globetrotters. They have camps around the world. And Christian, who runs that, they've been devastated as well. And yeah, I'm seeing these arguments the whole time about, you know, how we're supposed to do these things. You know, like lads go, oh, you know, but this only kills 0.000% of, of the people. Like, yeah, but how do you think they get it? They get it from healthy people like myself and Dan and from Mero and from people they come into contact with. No more than those malaria mosquitoes. They don't die of the fucking malaria, lads. But they are the ones who pass this thing on. And that's why it's important that we know about these things and that we can deal with these things as we go along. Yeah, I think one of the things, Phil, that like, and just when you said about the smallpox thing, it just, it, it, it perked up an old part of my brain that uh, I was fascinated by smallpox for, for a long time, went down rabbit hole after rabbit hole reading about it, to the point where we had a guest in this podcast talking about it, Colonel Randall Larson, uh, a couple of years ago, who worked with Donald Henderson, who was the man responsible for the vaccination program that ultimately led to the eradication of smallpox. And one of the things he said at the time was that smallpox is such a deadly and such an easily transferable virus that the only option 
is eradication. It is the only path to pursue. But when you're dealing with something, say, like the Spanish flu, because obviously at the time COVID wasn't there, but he said when you're dealing with something like the Spanish flu, you vaccinations and that kind of thing are, are almost a pipe dream in a way. That mm. they, they, they take long times to come, and by the time they come, the, sometimes the flu is born out or the virus is born out. Herd immunity is something that we've heard talk about, and it wasn't the right thing to pursue for whoever. You know, like the, the Brits got so much flack over it and all that kind of thing. Herd immunity can exist, or at least my understanding, and I'm not a fucking medical person by any shape or any stretch of the imagination. Herd immunity can work well when there's a vaccination in circulation. Mm. Does and when people are talking about herd immunity with something like COVID, that like I don't actually this week I, I think I seen um a case of somebody being reinfected a couple of months after getting it the first time. Yeah, that was which, in Hong Kong, yeah. Yeah, which suggests then that okay, if you do get it, you've got almost this temporary barrier but mm-hmm. it, it can come back and get you again kind of thing which then would suggest herd immunity is not on the cards yeah so so the different kind of things that different countries are pursuing it as you said everybody's working off the same information but it's the interpretation of the facts that's key and I, i'm just i'm fascinated listening to you talk about it because it, it's I don't know. I just think that there's so many things Ireland is doing right in some regard, and then there's so many things Ireland is doing wrong. But I think everybody can accept if Ireland tries to pursue another national lockdown, it's not going to fucking work. No, but and the, the reason for that, Dan, is that in the very beginning, it was absolutely fascinating. Like, again, you talk about the smallpox rabbit hole that you went down. I've been down this rabbit hole now for a long time, and I have one foot in each camp, right? I've lived here yeah. for 21 years. I know the Swedes better than they know themselves, right? I grew up in Dublin. I've been wandering around Ireland for most of my adult life before I came here. So I think I have a fair handle on the Irish people as well. And to be able to compare and contrast the reactions and how they went down and how lockdown was originally perceived in Ireland and how that changed over time and a similar thing in Sweden and this is the thing about Tegnell you know he goes around the place and he wears jumpers and he wears jeans and he wears runners and he looks like your dad right and you know you're inclined to give him you know about the same level of respect as your dad talking about rugby or whatever that would happen to me right but and you know that whole thing of it struck me like you know you know when somebody says something really really clever and only about two months later you go fuck me that was really smart you know it happens to me occasionally with Mero because I never take him seriously the first time you know? but, but but when he said that thing of, I need this to be long term, I need this to be doable over a long time, right? And if you remember the paranoia, or not the paranoia, but the fear, right? Because paranoia is almost unfair, something that's, you know, that's wrong. The fear that people had, and people were very receptive in the very beginning to the lockdown. They were going, okay, this is really scary tell us what to do, right? A very good friend of mine, I don't know if he's still doing it, but he would go shopping when nobody else was there and he'd be like, you know, washing down his groceries before he'd bring them into his gaff, this kind of thing. Loads of people were doing that, mm. you know, that kind of thing. They wouldn't share the car, they wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't go to anybody's house, you wouldn't do anything, right? But then, to, for in order for that to be sustainable, an awful lot of things have to be have to happen, right? Tegnell's thing here was very, very simple conversation, uh, communication, right? Wash your hands, stay at home if you have any symptoms, work from home if you can, try to avoid public transport, stay away from elderly people or people in risk groups. And 
every day he had a press conference at two o'clock and every day he would say those five things and there was never any confusion and there was never any uh, have a round of golf and go for dinner if you want to or that, that kind of thing. Uh, they said about when he talked about table service, they made the restaurants here table service only. And they said, why do you want to do that? And he said, well, if people come in with a company, say you go out with your wife, you share the house with her, you're sitting down at one table, you only interact with one person. That's the waiter or the waitress. Right. But if you go to the bar to get a drink and you're up and back and you might meet some fella and you're talking about Shamrock Rovers or whatever you're doing. Right. And then the next time you go to get a drink and the next and you might interact with three or four or five people. So his thing was, you know, it's not we're going to eradicate interactions with other people. We're going to limit the number of interactions with other people. Mm. Right. Whereas in Ireland, you have to have something to eat that costs more than nine euro. Ah, for fuck's sake, you know, because it just, it makes no sense. And if you, like, if you put something like that up there and there's no, there's no tangible explanation for it, because Technel was literally able to say that. I said, we're trying to limit the number of interactions, right? Now, if whoever was health minister at the time, whether it be Stephen Tony, Simon Harris, was, was able to say, we're trying to limit the number of interactions. That's the reason for it. Everybody mm. would have gone, Top drawer, chicken in a basket, and two pints of stout, right? But they didn't. And they started bringing yeah, their arbitrary right. things, you know? And, and this is what's so hard for people to understand. And then the, the Irish people are, you know, the way water will always find its way down, right? It'll always go through, take the path of least resistance, right? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what Irish people will do. We saw it pretty soon, two weeks afterwards, we saw publicans driving around the place with kegs and gas and everything else in the back of their car, saying points, you know, because that's what we do, you know? But we see, as well as that, Phil, though, but the, the, the worrying thing, and I agree with you 100%. I mean, the, the nine euro substantial meal thing, like that gave people then ammo to say, well, look, if the government don't know what they're talking about, I'm not doing it. You know, I'm not going to be safe. I, you know, and, that, and that's a silly attitude to have. Mero, I, Mero, I, can I, I get it. Can I, sorry, lads, I'm going to interrupt for a second. Mero, can you put in the second ear? Because I think that's the one that has the microphone and you're coming across like you're talking into a tin of beans. Sorry. There you go. I'll go. No, lovely. I, I like think, Tony I think, now. That's lovely. <laughs> the late great the Tony Fenton. God rest him. The communication, though, you're spot on because I've seen uh, with loads of people saying, you know, this is idiotic. And therefore, they were given the, it was given them an excuse not to adhere yeah. to the severity of the case, of the issue. Like, yeah. you see, the thing is, lads, and this is the important thing. I was looking at when I mentioned those BJJ Globetrotters earlier on, right? Christian Galgart is a Danish guy who runs it, and he was like meeting all these arguments. He was talking about testing everybody before they go to jiu-jitsu camps. Jiu-jitsu is a form of wrestling. So you're getting up close and sweaty with people. Droplet bone virus, this is not a good thing. So obviously testing is a good idea. But you have all these Americans and everybody else going, oh, you know, this is not very dangerous at all. And he was saying, okay, well, you know, don't you hate those people who send their kids to school when they have the flu? And then your kid gets the flu and you get the flu. Don't you really dislike those people? So if you can avoid doing that to people, you should probably do that, right? Yeah, and yeah. this is the thing. Unfortunately, at some point, you know, and I'm, I like in the beginning of this pandemic, I was very, very careful, especially with Irish politicians, not to criticize them personally, because I, I really did feel we're all just trying to do our best in a situation where we've very limited knowledge. None of us have been through this before. So, you know, let, let's not, you know, let's not go nuts on them. But then when they started the grandstanding and when this became about, oh, look at me, aren't I great? And, you know, quoting from films and this kind of thing. It's like, lads, no. Oh, Churchill the, on Paddy's Day. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, this kind of thing. No, okay. Keep 
but so, so simple. Simon Harris was actually very, very good. A little bit of motive saying, oh, I can't believe people are doing things. That, that, that was good. I thought that was in place at the time. But Leo Varadkar thought, you know, you're, you're over-egging the omelette here. Sit down, you know. If you can keep this clear and you just keep thanking people, people love to be thanked and people explain to them about their sacrifice because they love to think that they're involved in this kind of thing. And everybody was involved in this. But you have to keep pushing that message home. Your grandmother, your sister, your aunt, your parish priest, they are still as vulnerable now as they were in March. Nothing has changed, right? Just because you're gagging for a pint in County Leash, nothing has changed. And the idea that somehow that, you know, okay, we go out and that kind of thing. No, no, nothing has changed. This virus is still the same. If anything, it's mutated a couple of times, so it's changed a little bit the way it works because of the way that we're dealing with it, you know? So we need to get back to that idea. And I was really thinking over the weekend, lads, about this this Irish word that we all know well, metal. This idea of, you know, if you help me with my harvest, I'll help you with yours. Of looking after your neighbour. Of making sure that, you know, he's not down to his last candle. Of pulling together and doing the, the, the things. You know, this idea of May feigning, of putting yourself first in these situations. Like, we had a Gaelic football tournament here in Stockholm on Saturday. We had to adhere to all the regulations. Can't have more than 50 people in the place. You know, there's a big fence around the artificial rugby pitch we played on. We had about, you know, 60, 70 people there, but we had to bring the teams in and out and try to adhere to it. We couldn't stand around and have a barbecue. We couldn't have a dinner in the evening in some pub because we couldn't have more than 50 people together. But that, that sense of social contact and getting together and our club doing something for the other clubs, that was a huge thing. And I realised how much I missed that social contact. That should have been the third or fourth tournament of the year. We should have been doing this since back in April. And the winters are long here lads and you miss these things but we have to do that for each other we're not doing this i'm not doing this because if i get covid it's going to kill me there's fucking nothing on this earth can kill me lads plenty of people <laughs> try it, right? but i'm not doing this for me i'm doing this for my mother-in-law my father-in-law i'm doing this for the people in the club who live with vulnerable people so that i don't pass on something to one of the girls or the lads that i'm coaching or one of the kids i'm coaching in the, in the jiu-jitsu club and then they pass it on to their grandmother i can't have that i don't know if i told you this story but i'll tell it to you now right um, Back in February, um, Bjorn from ABBA loves me because I treat him, as he says. Sorry, 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 sorry. Hang on a second. You You have a direct link to ABBA. I do, yeah. As I say, I've got to explain why, right? I interviewed Bjorn a couple of times (laughs) in recent past, I just love the way it's just thrown in there. So, like... Sorry, but, but, oh, no, oh, no, it gets better, right? So I interviewed him a couple so of we're, times. We're going to interview Bjorn and what's the story? Is it? Phil, is it? I'll ask him. Phil, All we, I can do we, is ask. We, we are going to have a conversation in a minute. Tell your story. Right. <laughs> so I interviewed him a while, <laughs> while ago. Uh, he, he, he published this book, right? Um, what, Jesus, what was it called? Uh, it's, it's basically a book about fake news, right? But he ended up giving out 130,000 copies of it out of his own pocket to students, high school students in Sweden, right? And I interviewed him and he stuck around talking to me afterwards, right? He was going, oh, I have only 15 minutes. I was going, yeah, whatever, we'll get through it, you know? And I was setting up my lights and my camera and we're having a chat and that kind of thing. And he says to his PA afterwards, he says, I like your man, that Irish fella. And uh, she says, why is that? He said, well, he treats me like a normal person. And I heard him saying that. I said, that's your problem. I said, you've far too much money. I said, people won't be honest with you. And he goes, well, why do you do it? I said, well, I don't care. Like, you know, I'm happy enough just to have a chat to you like anybody else. He said, oh, that's great. So we were doing a couple of things anyway. I've interviewed him a couple of times about Glietha Bay and all these other, because he loves Glietha, you know, he loves talking about her. But then he was opening a hotel about two and a half hours from where I live here. And he said, I've got to hold a press conference. He said, will you come down and cover it? I said, absolutely. So then I went to Portugal and COVID broke out and that and I came back. And his PA rang me up and she said, Bjorn wants you to come down. She says he's cancelled the press conference, but she wants he wants you to come down and film it. And you can then send the feed to everybody else. So I said to the uh, the PA, I said, I'm not doing it. And like, you know, 
they were offered a fair wage of cash, lads, it has to be said, right? And they said, I'm not doing it. And she said, why? I said, well, I'll just come back from Portugal, right? If I have COVID and I passed on to Bjorn and I end up being <laughs> the first person to kill a member of ABBA, I said, I'm done. That's it. I'm finished. So you can tell Bjorn, thanks very much for the invitation, but no, you know? And he was going, yeah, that probably makes sense. Because Bjorn's been, he's in the 70s now, but he's fit yeah, as a yeah. fiddle and he's flying around the place. So ever since now, what he does is, if he wants to do interviews with me, he sits there in front of his, his camera phone and he films, I send him the questions and he films the answers and he sends them on to me. He's a gas character altogether. But, you know, this is just, you know, it's one of those things that I can't be the guy who takes the COVID-19 virus into Bjorn's house. You know, I, I met his daughter recently and, you know, standing about sort of you know three meters away from because i just i just can't be the guy who killed abba i just won't do it lads you know <laughs> well, well well firstly as a massive abba fan thank you for for that consideration right <laughs> genuinely right? now there's a couple of things you need to know here phil first of all nobody <laughs> plays air piano to chickatita like i play air piano to chickatita <laughs> please don't say you sing it <laughs> depends on how much whiskey i've had right second of all <laughs> I've told this story in the podcast before, so I'll, I'll tell it very quickly, right? I once had a dream, and I, I know that's an ABBA song, right? But I once had a dream that I was responsible for getting ABBA back together, right? And in the dream, I, I was the master negotiator. I got them all back in the room, got them to record a new album, and I negotiated a live tour. Opening night of the tour, Wembley Stadium, sold out, right? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> They, they they were so appreciative of, of all the work I had done to get them back together and, and put all the dark shit behind and whatnot that they were like, we're going to open with Chikatita and we want you to come out and play. I was like, I'm fucking it. I'm in, right? So I'd been warming up. I'd been giving it loads. I'd been making sure I knew all the words and all in this dream. And then Benny calls me eating. And Benny informs me that because I can't grow a beard properly, I'm out of the band. <laughs> And, and Bjorn backed them up. <laughs> I never liked that bastard. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would pay thousands <laughs> to see that. Actually, I, I, listen, I, woke, I woke up from the dream and I was like, Benny, you prick. Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely heartbroken. So uh, yeah. that, that is the best dream anybody has ever encountered. But you know the way usually people tell you about their dreams and are terrible. That is, and I'm actually going to tell Bjorn about that story. I'm going to tell him that story the next time, <laughs> and I'll try and film the reaction. So even if we don't get him on the pod, we get his reaction on the pod. And, yeah, and, and then you, you can explain to him that I'm extremely <laughs> follically challenged in the face, and that it's taken me four months to get this going. So I mean, look, you know, I was just going to say, I mean, you have probably more chance of joining Al Qaeda than you have a joining <laughs> yeah. at this point in time. But he looks go. like an Amish yeah. part. But he's, he's a cast character. Like he's mad about politics. He's mad to talk about Donald Trump, and he's mad to talk about uh, Greta Thunberg and that kind of thing. I mean, the man has a huge amount of energy. But apparently, there is new music coming, Daddy. I can't tell you any more than that. But there's new music coming. I I I am erect with anticipation on that. Can I just call something out there as well? Yep. For anybody who's listening, you are talking about Greta Thunberg. Just you're you're pronouncing her name correctly. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I pronounced her name the <laughs> Swedish way. Because the first time you said it, it was like who, and then it clicked, and I was like. Okay. There you go. Well, she, she's still doing her, stu- her school strike for the climate, you know, so everybody's been on, or not everybody, but there's a lot of kids on a school strike. Her gap year finished now. She's, she's saying she's going back to school. Yeah, now, she's gone back to school now, but she'll still be there every Friday. I actually might nip in there this Friday and see if she's there because I haven't spoken to her in a while, you know, but she's, um, she's funny because she kind of... Um, there was just so much attention around that young one. And, you know, as you know, yeah. she has autism and she has various different sort of issues and that kind of thing. But she managed to actually get rid of most of the... Like, you know, I don't... 
it's why I go up to her and say, okay, Geta, how do you feel today? Do you want to do something? And she says no, she says no, you know, and that's fine, you know, and uh, like, do you have a whole load of kids there and if they're going to do something on a particular day, like they might be sitting there eating and you sh- like she hates to be filmed when she's eating, you know, as, as anybody would, you know, yeah. the last thing you want is your face in a picture, a picture uh, the front page of the Daily Mail, you're having a sanger, you know, but um, she's like, she's an incredible young one altogether, you know, but it, it's a great, I have to say, that's a great privilege to be wandering around here, you know, after coming out of the north side of Dublin to be wandering around talking to your man out of ABBA <laughs> and then going into CVS on a, on a, on a Friday, whatever, you're, you know. You're, you're living someone's dream, <laughs> Phil, and it might be mine. That's all I'll say. Um, well, if I ever find myself playing air piano with Alba, I'll give you a call and I'll definitely be living your dream then. Come here, I have the beard as well. Benny can't knock this This beard, is true. Boys. Benny can't kick you out. You could, I could live vicariously through you. Benny can't kick you out, man. We'll have to glow mine again for, uh, for Benny. Actually, sorry, sorry. There has to be one more ABBA story before we go, right? But I interviewed a guy, uh, Yanni, who was the guitar player. He played on about half of ABBA's hits, right? And I don't know if you heard this podcast I did a while ago, right? Yanni Schaefer is the guy's name. Lovely bloke altogether. And I sat him down and he played the riff on Mamma Mia, right? Do, 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 do. I said to Yanni, take me through that day. I went, well, Phil, I can't fucking remember. (laughs) I went, What? (laughs) And he says, I can't remember playing it at all. He says, I know I played it. Like, I know I was there to record it, but I can't remember anything about it. I see, that's one of the most iconic riffs in pop music. He said, ah, oh, Jesus, I was doing them all the time. You know, he played on everything at that stage, you know. And it was the most disappointing interview I've ever done with anybody. <laughs> no way. It was the only question I wanted to ask him. I was like, Yanni, you played that, didn't you? Yeah, tell me about it. I don't know. But he's another yeah, lovely book. Just, all the other people are lovely. Yeah, look, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm delighted to hear that because... Genuinely- and I haven't killed any of them yet either. <laughs> well, thank, thank for that because I would have ended this interview and never spoke to you again if you had um, Meryl yeah. I think you were trying to interject to get us onto the topic we really want to talk to Phil about besides that I want yeah, to talk more about it. Abbott but like it would be unfair to Phil not to plug what he has coming I call you Phil, after we can talk about it. yes Meryl tell <laughs> us about your kickstart and your project that you're undertaking yes well it all starts with the fact that I'm not well in the head and as I mentioned I was just going to say that as I mentioned earlier on, one night in a hotel in the last sort of six months, that's not even me. My wife is looking around going, are you still here? Have you not left by now? Have you not got me something else to be doing? No, but um, my calendar was entirely wiped out. I actually I remember breaking. I, I was the first one to break the story that the Euro 2020 was cancelled, right? So I broke that globally. And in the same moment as I sent that story, I wiped out my own calendar because as soon as the Euros was gone, the Olympics was soon after. Yeah. And that was it. We just knew the world was never going to be the same, at least for the rest of the year. And since then, you know, working with Technel and all these kinds of things, that's been great and working on other stories but i sort of really wanted to to work to do something around the american election and to do something different right so the u.s presidential election is taking place on november 3rd and in november 2016 i was over in new york because uh conor mcgregor was fighting eddie alvarez for the lightweight title that week uh, he fought him on the saturday the tuesday before was the election so i went over uh, for the election uh, on the tuesday and i just happened to meet a friend of mine in the midtown hilton man in manhattan and we sat downstairs with Donald Trump upstairs and, um, you know, he, he had traveled across America, just, you know, just a straight line kind of across America. Did you I meet him by accident? Uh, no, no, I knew I was going to meet him there. And I just said I'd oh, run sorry. into him because I, I knew I was going to be in Times Square doing some stuff for a news agency. So I said, right, I'll, I'll meet him somewhere around there. And it's a short distance to Times Square. So I said, I'll be able to go down, get reactions, that kind of thing. I said to your man, I said, well, I suppose um, Hillary's going to win. And he went, nope. And I went, what do you mean? He said, we drove all the way across this country, right? And this guy did a fucking brilliant thing, lads. He brought with him a cardboard cutout of Trump and a a cardboard cutout of Hillary Clinton. And himself and the photographer would get out. They hired a Ford Mustang and they drove across America. And they'd stop in fucking buttfuck Alabama, right? And they'd take out the two uh, paper, like our cardboard cutouts, right? And they'd say, this is Mr. Trump, this is Mrs. Clinton. You know, tell them what you want to say. 
So voters would come up and they'd address the candidate as if they were there. And it was the most brilliant thing I've ever seen, these two lads doing it. And then they told me that they said that there's no way Hillary Clinton's going to win because we travelled across this country. And in California, people were really nice to the Clinton uh, cardboard cutout. And in New York, they were really nice to her. But everywhere else, they fucking hated her. You know? mm. And he said, wait, you see. So we sat there until Florida fell. And that was the point. And as we were sitting there, like Trump's people were coming down and they were standing in the bar and we were talking to them. They go, yeah, we fought a good fight. It was good crack and that kind of thing. Then Florida fell and they all got the elevator back up to the floor where Trump was. And we all know what happened next. I went out onto Times Square and I was broadcasting live about 15 minutes after that. And it really was. It was like that. Do you remember that movie Heat with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino? Yeah. I mean, the Swedish fellow, we thought we were going to just sit there and just see the election out. And the two of us ended up fucking running out the door and seeing who could get the best interviews, you know? But that night sort of stuck with me, lads, because. And it's happened since. It happened before that with Brexit. It happens with elections. It happened with the referendums in Ireland. That we do all this stuff, journalists and researchers and academics, they do all this stuff, and still we get it so incredibly wrong. And what occurred to me was that when we look at uh, politics and we look at political correspondence and that kind of thing, they only, there's a huge bubble goes on. So they talk to politicians and they talk to other political correspondents and they talk to staffers and they talk to people in the know and fucking nobody ever talks to voters. And that was when I came up with the idea of Outside It's America. So the idea of Outside of It's America, uh, of Outside It's America, is to go to America 50 days ahead of the election and to go to each of the 50 states and to do a podcast from each one and finish finishing up in probably the same hotel in Manhattan on polling day and seeing how this turns out, right? It's the biggest thing I've ever undertaken. It's going to cost a fortune. I'm having a hard time raising the money, but I'm hoping that it's going to come in. It's going to happen in time. I'm not going to go near the candidates, lads. If they happen to turn up at whatever place I happen to be, fine, right? But my idea is not to follow the, the candidates. The New York Times will follow the candidates. CNN and Fox News, they'll all follow the candidates. I have no interest. If Donald Trump rings me in the morning, probably no interest in talking to him either, right? I want to talk to voters. If you look at what happened... Uh, and there's a Kentosha in, uh, in America where that man, the gentleman was shot seven times by the cops. I want to go to that place. I want to go to Minneapolis where George Floyd was shot. I want to go to the headquarters of the National Rifle Association. I want to go and talk to people after they've been to church. I want to go to talk to people in mosques and in diners and in gas stations and in laundromats, in jiu-jitsu gyms and outside baseball, like, you know, triple-A baseball stadiums, wherever. And I just want to talk to ordinary people because if I talk to ordinary people over there, they'll tell me what they think. And if they tell me what they think, then nobody who listens to this podcast can be surprised by the outcome of the election. And that's the whole point of it. And are you doing a video or audio? I'm going to do it audio, lads, because like... If I go back to where I started in this, my first love has always been radio, right? I know I've written books and fucking a billion articles and that kind of thing. My first love is radio. And I believe that there's something visceral. You know, the people who are listening to this, uh, the three of us talking, there's four people in this conversation. There's the three of us and there's the person listening to it, lads. And they are the most important person in this. Because if we're not thinking about them and entertaining them and making them feel part of it, they'll get bored and they'll fucking switch off, right? Now, they'll obviously never do that with such premium quality guests on the show, right? But uh, you know, that's the whole idea is to put them in the center of it. So that's why I want to do it in audio because it's a much more visceral experience. They can think, you know, if you interview somebody at a gas station, you're going to hear cars coming in. You're going to hear people, uh, you know, filling their car in the background. You're going to hear people going to the car wash. You're going to hear those noises. You can imagine yourself, yeah. like Dan, uh, playing the piano, the air piano at Abba. You can imagine yourself, dream yourself into that situation. You can be, the, you know, the fourth wall in there, right? And that, to me, 
it says an awful lot more than you know if it, like YouTube and or, or doing it on Instagram live or, or Facebook live or whatever. It's actually too lazy, lads. I want people to be able to listen. I wanted to be able to drive their car. I wanted to be in this world with me. But I want them to do the work. I want them to think about what's being said and say, what does this mean to me? What does this mean for the election? What do I think is going to happen now? And if I just show you a whole bunch of nice pictures and me stand there stroking my beard talking, so it's not going to be, have the same effect, you know. So what I really want to give is something, but you know, and I usually describe modern journalism as all the calories in the headline and nothing in the story. There's no nutrition in the story anymore. And I want to do this differently, you know. I mean, outside of America as a concept should be the thing that brings people in. But I really want to have a situation where if you're on your commute to work, Mero, and you listen to this for 40 minutes, I want you to come in the door of your gaff and not turn on the television. I want you to start making your dinner or walking your dog or whatever it's doing and thinking about what you just heard, trying to make mm. sense of it, trying to put it into context and think of what more you want to learn from this. Because, you know, I'm not in this for, you know, in the beginning, I thought, can I get Joe Rogan? Can I get LeBron James? Can I get Bjorn from ABBA? Can I get whoever to tell me? But then I went, why? Why would I do that? You know, what's the difference between their vote and everybody else's vote? That's the great thing about democracy is your vote is worth the same. We're going to hear from all these people anyway. Joe Rogan is going to do 12,000 hours of podcasting between now and November 12th where he tells us all about these things. LeBron James has a platform with the NBA. So we're going to hear about all that. What you're not going to hear is the guy pumping gas, in, you know, the guy that you talk to standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona as the Eagles had it. You know, these are the people that, that I want to talk to, you know. Am I doing? No, no, that would definitely end the divorce. No, that's. I think she's had enough of me for now. You know, that's like. I mean, it's like being in prison. You know? No, but it, it's one of those things where, when I have these ideas, she go, okay, it's better for you to be on the road doing this than to be at home and talking about it. You know, she's fucking yeah. sick of the whole thing already. I'd say, you know, <laughs> Sorry, so you God, know, I interrupted. It, no, you're grand. I was, I was just gonna say, like, it, it's, it's a fucking brilliant idea, Phil. Genuinely, Cheers, like, as, as someone who like yourself, I. I like audio documentaries. I, I like audio platforms. It's do you know what I mean? There is something submersive about it. And it's that thing of it just puts you into a different place. Like instantly as you're describing it and whatever, I have a mental image of you sitting in a booth in a diner somewhere along America's Rust Belt, chatting to that guy who has spent his entire life working in a mine who doesn't understand renewable energy, who doesn't understand the progressive way of things and in Trump he sees a hope that he doesn't see in other politicians and trying to understand that point of view in the context of the surroundings in which you're doing it it's not something we're going to get from Sky from CNN from even from Fox who are going to you know what I mean it's it's yeah. these little nuances of the campaign trail that, that go untold and you're going to try and tell them which is fucking brilliant and on top of that as well, I'm a big fan of anybody who uses outside as America because it's a great refrain from Bullet the Blue Sky. So there you go. I'm all right. Did, did you hear the promo I did for it? Did you? Have you heard? I the haven't promo? actually. No, I haven't. Ah, fuck that! You ruined it because it actually uses Bullet the Blue Sky, right? But I, I said, actually, if you want to, you can stick it into this episode. You know, if Bono calls yeah, you looking yeah. for money, then you, I never heard of it. <laughs> but but yeah. that was one of the things. Like actually, one of the conversations that I've I didn't go to America for a long time, and then I went back there uh, when Connor was fighting, and there was a Swedish guy called Jonas Jurebko, and quite friendly, which was playing in the NBA. And I just found myself back there, and I found myself in New York, and I found myself in Boston and in Los Angeles. I, I actually made a radio documentary in Los Angeles. 
a few years ago for Swedish radio. It's in the Swedish language. It's unfortunate. I'd love you to be able to hear it. Uh, it was a Swedish lad, a friend of mine, who went over and he had a trial for LA Galaxy. But there you can pay for a trial. They have these open tryouts. Mm. So, you know, as long as you're under 25, you can pay $185 and you have your chance at the big time. But of course, they bring in 400 guys doing this. So they make 20 grand over the course of two days. You know, So the, the documentary was about, is this a ripoff or is this a thing? But what I discovered over there, lads, was if you want to know what American people think, ask them. Right? Yeah. Just fucking ask them. Go to them in a bar and say, look, I'm over here just doing a thing. Can you talk to me? Right? And in the documentary, we had this woman who worked in a Denny's. We went to the same Denny's every morning for breakfast. And she adopted this guy. And she was going, okay, you sure you should be eating that when you're supposed to be over here training? Like, she became his mother over there. It was fucking brilliant. And then, you know, like, I, I went up to um, one of the times Connor was fighting in Las Vegas. There was a guy I met over there called Angus McIntosh. Now, obviously, from the name, Angus people were Scottish and they traveled over there in the mid 1800s. But um, Angus was this huge guy, bald head, big beard, much better than your beard, Dan, right? Big tattoos, the whole lot, right? <laughs> I don't yeah, believe he, that for a second. He would have got into ABBA on the air piano like a fucking shot, right? Um, huge guy. But he writes like self defense books about using a cane. And his thing was, well, you can't bring a gun on a plane, but you can bring a cane, right? So he actually wrote books and made videos about how to use a cane for self defense. But he was was also an NRA gun instructor, right? Now, not only that, he helped uh, veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder and all these things. And one of the things, I just said to him one day, I said, okay, can you do what you do for the NRA with me and two buddies who work in Las Vegas? And he went, sure. And I recorded the whole thing. And that's out now as kind of the prequel. That's the pilot, if you like, for Outside of America. Now, this is just one voice. But like, I went in there. We all know what I think about most things, right? We all know that I'm a reasonably liberal character who just wants everybody to fucking get along and everybody to have food in their fridge and to be able to hang out with their families and be fucking warm at night and have nothing to worry about, right? I wouldn't be into carrying guns. It's not my thing, right? But I park all that, right? Because if I bring my prejudice into this conversation, if I bring my Western lower middle class, whatever you want to call it, sensibilities into this thing, I'm just going to end up fighting and I'm going to learn nothing, right? I also didn't see it as uh, this thing with journalism, journalism being a process of verification. I didn't feel I had to pull them up on everything, right? But I just wanted to talk to them. So we went to the firing range and he explained a little bit about guns and then I drove him back to where we were going and he just explained this whole relationship that America has with guns. And these are the things that I feel that we need to learn. I don't agree with him anymore now than what I did before we had the conversation, lads. But I feel that his conversation with me has enriched me and the people who have heard it. So even if you don't agree with it, you can understand it. And this is the whole thing with, with QAnon, with Trump in general, with the whole thing about white supremacy reaching the point that it has reached, Black Lives Matter, all of these things, they haven't just appeared. No more than the coronavirus just appeared for Tegnell. This has been happening since the end of the Civil War. Yeah, exactly. Like all of these things, the reasons people believe these things are very, very complicated. And the way for me to get that story out of them is not to go up to them outside that pizza and go, come here, you, you fucking idiot, and explain this to me. No, you have to be humble. You have to be explained. Yeah. You said there the reason why people believe these things is complicated. Yeah. What do you mean? Like, so why would somebody, why would somebody believe in the dangers of 5G or Pizzagate or uh, whatever? Okay. So uh, if you look at politics in general, right, there's, there's sort of two sides to, to politics. You can do things in two ways, right? One of the politicians who did things in a positive way, in a sense of, with a sense of community, with a sense of this can be better for everybody. And one of the best known figures in social democracy was the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme, who was subsequently murdered, right? Palme, who was very, very well to do himself 
became, you know, the union man. He became the person who's going to make things better for everybody. He was the man who presided over, you know, the generous parental leave. He was the man who presided over, you know, getting companies to pay their taxes and making sure every worker paid their taxes so that there was something in this for everybody. School lunches were brought in. All sorts of things were brought in under a prime minister called Toggy Orlando who never really gets the credit for it. But Palme was such a great, uh, ret- uh, like a great, great orator he was a great speaker he was against the vietnam war so he became this figurehead on one side so he went with the idea of community of positivity of this is something we can all belong to the other side of that coin lads is often fear right so if you listen to certain politicians particularly on the right now the left does it as well the fear of unemployment the fear of automation the fear of you know people coming in and undercutting you of precarious employment all these things so it's not exclusive to one side or the other but on the right and indeed on the far right everything is about fear they are afraid of their own shadows lads they're afraid of dark brown people they don't know they're afraid of people in boats they'll never meet they're afraid of a religion they don't understand they long for a time that never existed and a history that never existed they're afraid of 5g they're afraid of it and what you do is what we all do is we construct a reality around what we believe right so if you can construct a reality like my mother's one of the most fearful people in the world right i don't even know if, my, if i lock my door when i came in here this evening i don't i'll go to bed with the door unlocked here i don't like i have nothing to fear right an awful lot of people would say that I live in a ghetto. You know yourselves from Ballybracken, from Talan, from places like that. People talk about these places, but like, you know, the odds of somebody coming up and trying to handle a Merrow's door, you know, and he doesn't have the biggest dog in the world in that gaff as far as I know, right? But <laughs> you know, the, the odds of somebody, it's very, very low, right? And yet we live with this idea that criminality is everywhere, right? I leave stuff in my car the whole time. Now, I shouldn't, but I do because of the fact that I don't actually expect this to happen. But at the same time, when I walk down the street, I've never felt unsafe in Harlem. I've never felt unsafe in Queens or in Brooklyn or in Manhattan or any any of the dark back streets there. I've never felt, there's only one time I've ever felt unsafe in Brazil and it wasn't in the fucking favelas, lads. They were grand. I just happened to take a wrong turn down a wrong street one night when there was deals going down and that wasn't a good place to be at that time. I've never felt unsafe in London. I've never felt unsafe pretty much anywhere I've been in the world and I've been to plenty of places. But we're told all the time to be afraid of everything. Stranger danger if you look at what girls are told what women are told about how they should behave themselves the greatest risk to any woman or girl is often in her own home that's where violence happens that's where sexual violence happens you're never told about that that's the real fear but if you construct this thing in able to be able to in order to be able to survive you think to yourself okay I need to be afraid of all these things. I need to be active about all these things. And what we do then is we fuel that. So we go into Facebook and we follow these things. And Facebook and Twitter and everything else, they see that. And they just keep feeding us these things to be afraid of. They feed us things about, you know, these waves of migrants and, oh, they're only men of fighting age and that kind of thing. You know, nobody's ever spoken to them. Nobody's ever seen them. Nobody's ever interacted with them. The first Syrian woman I ever spoke to in 2015 who came as that, in inverted commas, wave was a woman in a shawl who was there with our family, who travelled for fucking weeks to get across Turkey and eventually up to Sweden and wanted to go to Finland because she believed that she had a better chance of getting asylum there. And me thinking, Jesus, you'll never learn to speak Finnish because they can barely do that themselves, right? But that's what we do. And it, it's it's kind of unfortunate in a way. I have a certain amount of sympathy, even for, you know, I know I've said some harsh words about David Quinn and the far right earlier on. I have a, like, it's no way to live your life, lads. To live your life in fear of absolutely everything. To not be able to enjoy that generosity of spirit, right? The greatest, most generous thing you can do is help somebody you don't know. 
because there's nothing in it for you, right? So if you can help someone, if you see a fella stopped on the side of the road or inside the M50 or whatever, and you can pull in and say, yeah, all right, man, do you need a lift to the, the shell or the garage or whatever up the road? Can I get you a bit of petrol, whatever, you know? If you can do that for somebody, and that very thing happened to me very recently. Uh, I bought a car. And uh, I was driving, myself and the family were driving someplace, and it just stopped on the side of the road, right? And I thought, ah, oh, bollocks. And I thought, you know, there's a guy coming, a tow truck coming to take it away. And we we're just walking along the side of the motorway, and this fella pulled in a little bit further up. And he was a man of Somali extraction who'd grown up in London. And he said, look, I saw you there. I knew you were in trouble. I saw the direction you're walking. Are you going to the garage? Went, yeah. He said, I'll drop you up the road, right? And that, to me... That made my day. I hope it made his day. I hope it made him feel like a good human being because he was able to do that. But if you're afraid of black people, if you're afraid of African-Americans, of Afro-Irish, of people of Nigerian extraction, if you're afraid to get into their taxis, that kind of thing, imagine being afraid of getting into a man's taxi just because he's black. And yet there are people out there. And so I do. I have a certain amount of sympathy for I don't accept it. I don't think it's right. But I have a certain amount of sympathy for people who can't, deconstruct their own fear to the point where they can feel comfortable with these things so you know on that level that's why I want to talk to them lads that's why I want to understand them even these ridiculous fucking conspiracy theories even this ridiculous idea that God will provide even this ridiculous idea in America that anybody can become anything if they just work hard enough because we all know that's not true either but I need to understand those things myself and I hope to help everybody else understand those things as well because it's only by way of understanding these things that we can learn what we have to do to help these people out of it, right? There are certain people beyond help, right? It's just like, you know, certain people are going to wind up in prison. There's just nothing we can do for them. They're psychopaths. They belong, whatever, right? But I but I still believe, like Candide, like at this late stage, I still believe in the inherent good in most people. I honestly believe that most people just want to live their lives the way we were talking about. They just want to have their family and to be able to sit back and say, look, at you know, at least I left this world in a better state than we, the one I found Absolutely. it in, you know? And if we can help that, bring that out in people, you know? And I try to explain to people the whole time. When I meet people, I know I come across as very harsh online and I can be violently rude and violently angry towards people who espouse these things online. But if you sit down across the table from me, I'll do my best to help you understand why you're on the wrong track when it comes to ethnic minorities, when it comes to thinking that immigration or asylum seekers is a bad thing, when it comes to thinking that, you know, these people shouldn't live next door to you or the gay people shouldn't be allowed to marry or whatever else like that. Because, you know, the, the aggression is not going to get me anywhere. It's only by understanding that we can help people try to reach the same decisions that we have. Phil, can you can you then just correlate that right with the most recent things that we've had? Um, and you mentioned John Connors there earlier on. We've had John on a few times. I like John. I was disappointed with John in, in relation to what he got up to, to most recently. Um, but correlate with what you've said, right? And then bring it bring in the paedophilia thing, where the far right are brainwashing people now, and it's almost like they're saying um, they're, they could be doorstepping people and they could be saying to people, do you agree with paedophilia? No, of course I don't. Well, join us on Saturday for our march. You yeah. go out to the march and then you see anything but paedophilia signs. Where is this whole paedophilia thing? Like, is it, Again, it's, it's, it's cre- like you said, it's creating fear. Yeah, but, but, where, but this is, how do they pick their topics? But it's very simple, Mero, because it's the easiest open goal in the world. 
Do you believe that adults should be able to force children to have sex? No. Well, then, jump in my, jump in my boat here, right? It, it's an open goal. Nobody is going to say yes to that, right? Now, you have had these discussions. David Norris, his presidential campaign was pretty much upended by it, right? Yeah. We've had Roderick O'Gorman there recently because of the discussions. There's an intellectual discussion that happens around pederasty and pedophilia and the difference between the two, right? And it's a real sort of subtle and nefarious and kind of evil thing to do because essentially any time any gay person, especially a gay man, uh, arrives in Irish public life, this thing is always going to be hanging around them, right? But gay people being paedophiles, it's just one of those things that has been going on for years. So they use that because at the end of the day, this is the fear, right? It's the same thing when you're going to open a centre for asylum seekers. What do they say? Oh, you know, they call them rape fugees is the latest thing that are, you know, it has been for years, right? Because this idea, there's nobody in the world who outwardly at least isn't against sexual violence right so it's pushing in an open door and once you get them in there well then it's there right and and to be, to be honest now and i mean i'm not going to speak about you know conversations that i've had with, with john that haven't been in public right uh, but uh, john is a genuine i honestly think that john i don't agree with him on everything but then i probably don't agree with you two on everything either right but john is a genuinely decent fella and he genuinely felt i be truly believe that he genuinely felt that he was doing a good thing to protect children right and many people do but like you say the people who are controlling this the people who are controlling how the fear is portioned out they're not doing this for good reasons, lads. They don't care. And, and if they did care, you'd see it across the board. But they don't, right? If they did care, as I was saying, why aren't you picketing mass, lads? Okay? Why weren't you picketing the Christian brothers? Why aren't you picketing these places? They're not doing that because there's an element of religion to what they do as well and, and white Christianity and what have you, right? So, there's a, the, again, that's the, sort of the intellectual fallacy that they're presenting, right? But essentially the whole thing is a red herring and it's one of those things that we need to get away from i mean that the pizza gate thing is still being talked about the QAnon is still going on that's just the kind of thing that you know there was a whole is the, lot of is, has the pizza gate resurfaced just because of the presidential election yeah well it, like it's it's all part of that QAnon. the QAnon wouldn't really exist without that you know where we go one we go all of that you know but you know i go back to, like, compared to that loose change documentary that was made about 9 11 right and you'll still get people to this day, most, if not all of that, has been debunked ever since, right? But you'll still get people who go, well, I don't know, where does smoke this fire? You know, there's literally people who just, it doesn't matter how much evidence you produce. And I said it to somebody online this evening, right? They were going, oh, you know, you can give them fact after fact after. People don't give a fuck about facts, lads. Facts do not matter at all, right? Nobody ever remembers, you know, who the last king of Siam was, but they remember how things make them feel, right? And the strongest emotions that we can feel are love and fear. So if you can help a man or a woman to love, that's brilliant. If you can help them to fear, well, you can control them and you can manipulate them. And that's what all this is about. It's not about children, it's about paedophilia. It's all about control and manipulation, right? Because essentially, if you go back, and I spent most of my time during lockdown reading about two things, right? One is boxing and the other is history. And the two things that I've gone back to are the movements based in racism and the far right, being Hitler's rise in, uh, in after the First World War, between the First and Second World War, and the American Civil War. And I'm trying to study what was happening then, what was being said then, because like what happened around the Civil War and in the, the post-Civil War period in America is actually what laid the bedrock for what is de facto white supremacy. So the white supremacy was basically taken away. You know, you couldn't own a man anymore but that doesn't mean that all those structures disappeared and in fact they're probably as strong now as they ever were right and the other thing was how hitler used that fear and at that time it was the fear of the jews i visited auschwitz last year as you know lads i went there in october um, it was the 75th anniversary of the liberation of auschwitz in january this year and i was invited over as a part part of a party of journalists because 
basically the last survivors are now dying out and yeah. very very soon we won't have anybody still on this earth who remembers that who was part of that who witnessed that and the reason i went there was to find out how can we continue to tell these stories when these people are gone because holocaust denial is still a very very big thing right now if you've been there if you've looked at the barbed wire if you've walked through those gas chambers and if you've seen the empty canisters of Zyklon B and if you've heard the stories and if you've seen the ledgers, you can no longer deny what happened there. And then you'll get people who say, yeah, but was it really six minutes? No, sit the fuck down, right? You need to learn from history. Now, again, this is one of those things that I find it very, very hard to be compassionate towards people who come and say these things. But I know I have to do it if I'm to try to bring them around to my way of thinking and to show them what I have experienced in these places and the people that I've talked to about these things, you know. So when it comes down to it, fear is so, it's a powerful elixir in politics. And every time you see people trying to make people afraid, you've got to look out for the manipulation that's, that's following in the wake because it always is. And the people who are doing this understand that. In Ireland, frankly, they're very, very amateurish, right? You're not dealing with the intellectual elite here. But in Sweden, they, they struggled for a long time. You were dealing with basically boot boys, skinheads, guys in green, Harrington jackets and fucking bother boots, shaved heads, that kind of thing. That's not where they're at now. Now you have lads in suits and they've been to, you know, the equivalent of whatever spin doctor you'll have in, in Ireland for Phil Hogan before he has to resign, right? These guys are well he able has, to speak. He's gone tonight. He just did the breaking news is officially resigned. There you go. And, and there we go. What's the story breaking the news again, lads? You know, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's like you have these guys who are very, very well able to put it across. So if you look now, a lot of the language or a lot of the language was coded in Sweden and now it's changed. Right. So when you see certain TDs standing up in the doll, a perfect one is this idea of repatriating money to the mother country. Right. You'll often see a said about Nigeria. The people are sending money home. Right. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, everybody in Ireland was buried with American money because everybody was buried using, you know, the money of their sons and daughters that was sent home for the funeral. Uh, you know, if you've ever heard the song The Streets in New York, uh, New York by the Wolf Tones, you'll know yeah, that yeah. story, you know? So, like, all of these arguments, they're dog whistles. They're, they're You're basically trying to stop, like that malaria thing that I was talking about earlier on, right? The malaria virus is sending out just a little, little signal saying to the mosquitoes, pick me, pick me, pick me. And what you're doing is when people fall down this, you know, fall into this rabbit hole of fear, then these things just fuel that fire. And when you get into that, lads, it's, it's like, you know, think of Meryl, how much you love Shamrock Rovers, what that means in your life, right? You go onto Twitter every day and you're following, oh, new player's been signed, or this guy is fit, or Jack Bourne has been bought by a Swedish club because Phil O'Connor fixed the deal, that kind of thing, right? This consumes you, right? I, you know, can you imagine how hard it would be for me to convince you to go and cheer for Pats? Or to go and cheer for bows. That's the level that you're dealing with, right? They're so personally invested in this. They've built up an entire persona around these things. I am this person. I am an Irish nationalist. I am anti-pedophile. I am a white Christian. I, you know, these are all the things that they become. And if you're trying to dismantle that part of anybody's identity, because it is a form of brainwashing. And essentially, you could say that all politics is a form of brainwashing. But to me, they're choices that you make. At some point along the line, you make a choice and you say, yes, this appeals to me. The anti-pedophile thing appeals on a very, very visceral level. For me, it was always, I mean, I go back and remember the poverty in Dublin when I grew up. And I remember the, the heroin epidemic that happened. And I remember thinking to myself as a teenager, when I went to school, everybody in school obviously calls, like, I don't even like calling you Mero. 
Like I would prefer to call you Graham. I don't even know. You're one of the very few people I call by their nickname, Graham. And that's, you know, it's just one of those things. I'd never done it in school. I stopped it when I was in about third year in school because your name is your own and you deserve the dignity of that. Now, I know that you, it's not that you don't mind being called Mero. You actually like being called Mero. And that's, you know, what you use on Twitter. That's part of the Mero brand, right? There'd be T-shirts, to be the whole lot, right? But that's one of those things. I remember thinking there has to be a better way of doing things where we can all have a better society. And when you start thinking of these things at 15, now I could just have easily have thought when I played against Kwame Ampadu who played football for O'Connell schools and was a far better Gaelic footballer than me went on to play for Arsenal his son is actually at Chelsea at the moment Ethan I could have said that fucker's taking my place in the team you know that, that, that guy is taking what's, what's this fucker doing you know with his black skin coming here and playing my game this is my game I'm an Irish person who's he to think that he's fucking Irish and many lads who saw Kwame playing they did and they fucking said it to him, lads, on the pitch. And it's to my eternal shame that I never spoke up for that lad. I speak up for him now and I speak up for his son now. But I wasn't mature enough or I wasn't clever enough at that time to be able to do it. And now that man lives in Wales. And, you know, I haven't spoken to him since those games that we played in school. He went to the Greyhounds as well. He was a great Irish speaker. And I'd, I'd love to ask him that question. Did he leave Ireland and stay out of Ireland for so long? Because people like me didn't stick up for him. You know, so, you know, it, it is, you know, like the road less traveled or, you know, it's, it's you come to a fork in the road and you can either choose fear or you can choose love and you can choose community. You know, there's a sense of community in what the far right are doing as well. And that's a very powerful sense. If you're with, you know, I'm not going to mention their names because they don't deserve mention on this show, but we all know who the ringleaders are. But if you feel part of that and if you feel seen by them and you think, oh, you know, these people are journalists or they've written books or they've made films or whatever, it gives you a sense of credibility. It gives you a sense of belonging. There are so many people I know who've been in the far right who describe that, you know, this is the first time I ever felt like I belonged. There were misfits somewhere else. And it's a powerful thing. And that's why we need to be so careful. I've often talked about it like around Christmas time. I'll often put out a tweet and say, look, if, if your uncle or if your brother comes out with something like this around the table pick up on it you know you don't have to be aggressive you don't have to ruin the turkey over it right but you need to pick up it you need to push back and say look that's not really how things are you know that's like the idea that people are getting prams for free and all like no that's not how things are at all these people come over here and they struggle now like you know i was only talking to somebody about it today there are bad eggs I heard of somebody threatening somebody today. There are bad eggs out there, lads. So, you know, you can't go excusing all sorts of behaviour. But yeah. what you can do is you can push back against the idea that all these people are bad because they're from the Middle East, Africa. You're, you're just as likely to meet a prick from Dunleary or a prick from O'Connell Street or a prick from wherever as you are to meet a prick from fucking, you know, yeah, Somalia. Pe- or, people are people, lads. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. you know. And I think the, the, the whole thing that strikes me, and, and, and like yourself, Phil, like, you know, I mean, I probably spent far too much time reading stuff about history. I'd say Oksana fucking is driven demented by me saying, come here, do you ever know this? And just throwing out random stuff like, and, but it is, and like the, the commodity of fear is fucking, you know what I mean? Like people can talk about going into fucking, you know, wars over oil and all this kind of stuff, but fear, the ability to control and manipulate people, that's, you know, I mean, th- that is something that you see constantly throughout history, constantly throughout the rise of religion, constantly throughout the rise of these dictatorships as well. It's that whole notion, like you said, of saying, if you want to keep what you have, you can't let them because they are the problem. Let me pause you there, Dan, right? Because as a, as a man who likes to read history, uh, d- d- have a think about this, right? What was the Vietnam War about? Right, I'm, I'm just going to go with the lazy answer and go communism, just to... That's not you know. the lazy answer. That's the correct answer. 
right? Okay. So you had McCarthy and you had, you know, mm-hmm. the, the communist witch hunt that was going on there, right? But like Korea, Vietnam, it was all about communism, right? It's about two things, about communism and money, but mostly about communism, right? So by being able to have this fear of communism going on, they still, I mean, people in Sweden and people in Finland are, are despite the fact of social democracy, that they're still afraid of what they call, you know, the red threat here. They're afraid <laughs> that they'll wake up and the Russians will be on their doorstep, right? That fear that existed at that time, American boys were conscripted and sent to their deaths and celebrated because of that fear, right? America sacrificed a generation of young people, both to guns and to bullets and to landmines, but also to heroin when they came home, mm. just because of the fear of communism, right? Now, the fact that this industrial machinery producing weapons, et cetera, et cetera, was able to keep going, right? Then that finished. And what was the next big fear? Well, th- that fear it, in, in two different times, it became Islam. And it became uh, this idea of the Middle East. It became we have to sort of perpetuate this thing. So first was the fall of the Shah in Iran. And then we moved on to Saddam Hussein. And, you know, the first he was our friend and then he wasn't our friend. But then 9-11 changed all of that. And, like, and it has done. Like, think that that's 19 years ago, lads. And that was a huge catalyst for the Islamophobia that exists today, right? Now, I mean, it's just it's so unbelievable how much and that fear still exists people are still worried that these things are going to happen when in fact the far right in, in america has killed far more people than islamic terrorists have in the last 20 years you know exactly uh, yeah. i think covid 19 has killed i don't know how many was it up to 59 9 11s is, is the last statistic i saw so yeah. so with that fear but with that fear you can do absolutely anything you had a president barack obama served two terms and it consistently questioned whether or not he was a muslim in other words is he loyal to this country, right? So that fear, when you're generating that all the time, Brexit, all about fear, fear of the foreigner, fear of the other, fear of not being in control. And when we succumb to that, I mean, fear is, what, you know, there's a great expression in Swedish, you know, um, it's, it's like wetting yourself. It's lovely and warm to begin with, but after a while it gets cold, clammy, and nobody's comfortable anymore. And that's what fear is like. And, you know, it is, it's almost addictive because when you start to be afraid of something, you know, and then eventually you might realize that, oh, maybe I shouldn't be afraid of it, but something else always comes along. And, you know, for many years it was communism and now we're into that whole Islamophobia idea and communism, you know, so this idea, America will never have socialism, yada, yada, yada. You know, yeah, but are you free? You know, do you have the money to do what you want? You're not even free to get sick, lads, you know? So yeah, they're, they're yeah. the things that, you know, you try, to, you try to challenge in people. You try to say to people, look, at, you know, like, how bad is it? What do you know about this to begin with? Because if all you know about is what you're reading on Facebook or what you're seeing somebody sharing, A, for the most part, you know, most of it is not factually correct. But that that feeling, that like, you know, how do these people make it? And you'll often find that when somebody comes into contact, as you often will, oh, almost invariably now in the Irish healthcare system, you're going to run into a doctor from Pakistan or a nurse from the Philippines or a dentist from Iran or whatever it happens to be. And then all of a sudden you're going to go, and many older people would say, oh, you know, I don't want a black doctor treat me or that kind of thing. But many in, in our generation who might have those kinds of ideas, then when this person is standing over you, helping you, and you don't have a whole room of choice, you're going to realize that they're flesh and blood like you and me. Again, I keep going back to this thing, lads, that, you know, the, any man or woman that I can look in the eye and I can think, okay, that person just wants the same their life as me. They want to live a life in security and dignity and a little bit of prosperity. And they want to leave the world in a slightly better way than it was for their children. And as long as you're on board with that, then I have no problem with you whatsoever. I don't care where you go, what prayers you say on a Friday or a Sunday or a Tuesday. Or I don't even care if you support Shamrock Rovers, which is, you know, that you're really <laughs> I, among the I, lost if you do that, you know, I, but I'll accept that. I was just going to say, Phil, that was a great way to end the interview. <laughs> and then you had to ruin it. 
<laughs> but no, that, that, that is, I mean, seriously, Mario, I mean, we could talk about all these things. We have more in common, as this conversation between you and me has been going on for years now, Mario, proves we have more in common than what sets us apart. And rather than looking to stoke the fear over the things that make us different, if we can just find the things that we have in common, then we'll always have a common ground. Beautiful. That's outside, it's America. It's on Kickstarter, and it is well worth throwing the price of a couple of cups of coffee towards, and you won't regret it come November. Well, October. It'll all be kicking off in October. You're kicking it? off in September. September 15th, I think it was, lads, yeah. Phil, are you going, are you going even if you don't meet your target? If I don't reach the target, um, and this is again, we're breaking news on what's the story. This is what we do. If we don't, if I don't reach the target, I got, I won't be able to do all fifty states. But I'm looking at how I'm going to solve it. But you know, Danny loves. You see, this is the thing, Mero. You and me, we're journalists, right? We're the editors here, right? <laughs> Danny's gone into content creation and marketing, right? So Danny loves a good marketing <laughs> campaign. So I just, I have to rejig it so that marketing people like Danny will be happy. But I guarantee you, Dan. <laughs> I will provide you with the content that you you Instagram or influencers crave, right? But I will do it. It might be on a little bit of a smaller scale, but by Jesus, I'm not letting this one go. The, the notion That's of Graham American being an editor tickles me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the way the editor of the Irish he, Times. We, we've already been talking for five minutes when he calls in and we go, Oh, you're ready to go, lads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, Phil, look, well, the other, the other Danny, things I Danny, say, Danny, if I was the editor of the Irish Times, that would be my first headline. Oh, for fuck's sake. Graham, if you were the editor of the Irish Times, it would essentially be on Publocked. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what it would be. J- Jack Bourne sounds for AIK in Stockholm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Phil, we'll, we'll we'll have to get you back on at some point in while you're doing your tour or just before you head off or something like that. We'll we'll have to hook that up because I'd, I'd be fascinated to not only listen to it, but also just, you know, to have a chat to you to see how you're getting on over there, to see if you're, you're pulling the hair out of your beard out of frustration or what's going on. But it's, it's a fucking great project idea, man. I wish you all And I'll be WhatsApp with the side out of you when that's, you're there. Look at that. I, I drop everything just to come on this podcast. There's, yeah, I wouldn't yeah. do that for the bash. I wouldn't do that for any of the other podcasts <laughs> I listen to. But I'll drop everything to come on What's the Story, lads. Yeah, Jen, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. And all the best for it. So there you go. And as we said, some of that info is a little bit dated because the Kickstarter campaign is being pulled, but Phil's looking at other options and all that. We wish him all the best with it. We're going to support it regardless. Um, Merlo, have you recovered yet from Rover's penalty shootout during the week? Oh, my Jesus. Did it, 12, take, year- 11, did it take years off you, did it? It really did. My fucking heart was thumping. And uh, <laughs> they went first with their penalty, so it yeah. was like, Manus, please save, save. And then he doesn't save. And then, you're, oh, Jesus, man, I can't even describe it. Because the streaming service that Rovers put yeah. on from a third-party production company was fucking appalling. And well, it went it went out like, oh, Jesus, it was... Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Come on, <laughs> man, man. Like I said, Saturday morning, we're about ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, it was unwatched. Uh, you forgot we was... were recording there, didn't you? You told yourself... <laughs> <laughs> It was unwatchable. Uh, oh, man. I'll tell you what else. I, sorry, just to cut across you. I'll tell you what else will be unwatchable for you now. This week will be when top of the table clash happens. Oh, my God. Be nerves. I'm looking forward to it, man. I'm looking but forward it was, to it. It was unwatchable. And Con Murphy, who was doing the commentary, uh, obviously wasn't at his phone throughout because he's a professional uh, mm. working man. Um, and he was unaware that the fans had been complaining online about the stream and he was unaware for the whole duration of the match extra time at Penos. <laughs> oh man. So, yeah, it was a shit show. Um so Rovers fans have a private chat 
on uh, Facebook, mm. and one of uh, a, part, a member of staff that's on the staffing team uh, at Rovers uh, recorded the extra time on Facebook Live. So without him, um, it would have been a shit show. So we got him. He recorded the panels, and that's how we watched the panels. Because the, the the stream and end up being about 25, 30 minutes delayed. Holy shit! That's yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah, it was it, to answer your question. It was awful for the nerves. The heart was pumping <laughs> for about forty five minutes after the fucking after we went through. But um, we the names we could get in the next round is a fucking who's who of European football like mm. AC Milan, Spurs, Rangers, Wolfsburg. It's fucking mental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, Obviously, it, it's a pity that you know it's kind of going to be behind closed doors and all that. I think yeah, Rovers fans would relish uh, an AC Milan toy. It would be an experience, like. But uh, yeah. Well, sure, we'll see what happens. But Mero, uh, yeah, that's it. That's it for this episode. So thanks, thanks to Phil and again, wish him all the best with it. Uh, if you want to check out our previous stuff, lads, it's wtspod.com, or you can get us on Stitcher, Podbean, Podcast Republic, Podcast Addict, Apple Podcasts. Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, so search WTS Potomac there. I'm at Dan John Murray. He's at American Mania. Oh, look at that. Jinx. I'm not allowed to talk again for the rest of this podcast. (laughs) You're not allowed to yawn again for the rest of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, that's it from us. Uh, Check out Phil's Twitter as well to keep an eye on what he's going to get up to. But until next time, lads, clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Oh, sweet. Yawn, yawn.